when you're going to learn from somebody, it's important that there's something in common, that you're similar in some way. So when you go for a mentor or when you're looking for a spiritual guide, you see something uh, of yourself in them or you see some potential in yourself because of them. So I'd like to share a little bit about how we're similar to trees because we already have a wealth of uh, inspiration from everybody. Everybody already knows what we can learn. Now, why, why we would want to? Well, first of all, um, trees are such an essential part of humanity and our story, the drama of humanity. They're part of our actual history. They're part of our mythologies all over the world. I'll just share a few uh, thoughts that come to mind. In, in Norse mythology, Norse cosmology, the universe is all within an invisible tree called Yggdrasil. And it's thought in, uh, in that tradition, in the Germanic traditions, ancient Germanic traditions, that uh, the world tree will survive. So they would have um, the tree in their homes, some kind of evergreen tree, because it was a symbol of eternity, immortality. I had wondered long ago why people in the West have Christmas trees. I don't remember anything about a Christmas tree in the Bible. I think because of that, I took a particular course on the Germanic uh, traditions with a Jesuit priest when I was in uh, Georgetown University. And this man was very fascinating. He was like Indiana Jones to me because he was a professor by day and then he would escape every so often to Scandinavia or some other part of Europe where he would be tipped to some ancient relic of uh, the Vikings or Norse, something in an ancient church had been discovered and then he would come back and he had found some clue to the story. And he, at the time, he was working on a translation of a book called The Halion. And the Haliand is from somewhere around 1000 AD. And it is literally the story of the Christian gospel told from the perspective of the Vikings with a Viking savior and uh, he's crucified on a tree. And this resonated with the people in the north because they thought maybe this is some uh, fulfillment of Viking prophecy. And in Norse mythology, Wotan or Odin the main god of Norse mythology hangs himself on Yggdrasil, the world tree, but he doesn't die. So Yggdrasil, the main, the centerpiece of cosmology for those people means Odin's horse. Literally means that because he ultimately rides the horse or rides the tree and he survives. So it's sort of like there's a connection uh, between the, the Norse people and the, the incoming Christians. So Father Murphy says, I think what happened was when the Christian missionaries came in 1000 AD, they had to accept the tree. There was no way they were going to get around this with the conversion if, if they didn't keep the tree. Once they agreed to keep the tree, they were open to listening to these other stories like the Haliand. So when does the tree come out? The solstice. December 21st, right around Christmas time. And the Christians probably said, well, 
we can incorporate this into our into our celebration because the evergreen has a triangle. So when we put it, it'll mean the Holy Trinity for us and we'll put a star that represents Bethlehem on top and uh, you know the, the Norse people will be happy and then they can accept what we're selling, <laughs> what we're pitching. And, uh, but I think it's kind of poetic uh, beauty on, a, on the largest scale because this tree for them is the immortal tree. And even though many of their traditions kind of got absorbed into this emerging Western culture and civilization, the tree is still there. The tree is still there. It's still, um, you know, appearing every solstice all over the world now. And uh, that is the symbol of immortality for that tradition. So I think it's kind of interesting to see that if nothing else, the tree survived. And um, also, we, we are familiar with funeral burials, but burials were not really the tradition in uh, the Mediterranean region in that time. There were tombs, and people were often put in the tomb. Sometimes multiple people were laid on a slab until the body decayed. So why do we now put people into a coffin? Well, again, Father Murphy says, probably because at the end of the world, everything is absorbed into the world tree. So we would put people back in the day into the trunk as a symbol of being absorbed back into the tree. They would actually be in a trunk. The trunk was the coffin. And somehow that was exchanged during uh, that uh, cultural interchange around 1000 AD. So I think this is fascinating. And then of course, uh, there's someone mentioned the Tree of Life. Tree of Life is an essential part of Kabbalah tradition, the esoteric part of Judaism. Um, we know that the world begins in, in Christian mythology with the earliest humans eating an apple from the tree of what? Tree of knowledge. But it's not just the tree of knowledge, because that would have been pretty great if it was just the tree of knowledge. It's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the full name of the tree. So to me, that means that's when people started seeing the pairs of opposites, us and them, us and trees. Um, you know, good, bad, up, down, left, right. And in Taoism in ancient China, this is obviously the, the foundation of the Taijitsu, the yin-yang symbol, which has the pairs of opposites dancing together. And the path in Taoist tradition or in, in many martial arts is to gain mastery over those two forces. Those forces are always competing within us, day, night, day, night, uh, up, down, good, bad, and so on. And as you gain mastery over it, it ultimately leads to transcendence, which would be like a return to the primordial state where there's just this sense of oneness. And then in, in the just the actual history of human beings, some of the pivotal moments of history came with trees, like when uh, the Buddha became enlightened under a Bodhi tree in northern India, or when uh, Newton had the apple hit him in the head and realized something is pulling this and dis discovered gravity. Um, so the tree has this 
you know, amazing role that it keeps playing as the drama of humanity unfolds. And I think that's, a, that's really beautiful. In our own lives, I think trees take a center role at times in our personal mythology. My mindfulness training began in the forest. I lived in many places growing up. My, my father was in the Navy. But everywhere we went, I always remember the forest being right in the backyard. I think that was his um, primary criteria. We can go wherever we want, we can live in an apartment, we can stay at a friend's house, but it's gotta be a friend that you, you can access the forest from. And I would walk in the woods with my dad and my dad could adopt the pace of nature. And because he slowed down so much, he could communicate with life forms in the forest. And then we had many pets that were not uh, conventional pets. We had a raccoon, Rocky. <laughs> we had a squirrel, Butterscotch. We had many rabbits, and we didn't get them from stores. We spoke to them in the forest, and they became good friends. And I remember one time just walking in the wilderness, and my dad could spontaneously create mythology. We would just be walking and he would just be narrating stories. We came to a hollow tree once in our backyard, deep in the woods, and my dad automatically started saying, this is a magic tree. This, a, this hollow tree is actually a door to another world. Do you want to go into that door? And I'm like, I don't want to go into that door. <laughs> and he's like, then be very respectful of this tree and approach it with great attention and, and then you start to really notice things that are going on. And when I saw my, my father in this, in this way, it was the secret of how he could communicate because we really didn't know how he could talk to the animals and how they could come and then become our pets. But one time I remember swimming in a, in a pond in Northern California, this was more recently, and there's a lizard on a rock and it's watching my father and I swimming peacefully and just totally enjoying the moment. And I, I didn't notice the lizard as, as early as my dad did. And then my dad says, you see that lizard over there? And I said, yeah. And he says, he wants to swim in here too, but he doesn't know if uh, it's safe. I'm like, how do you know that? And he said, well, I'll show you. And he swims over there. And then he's looking at the lizard and he says, you wanna, you wanna go around the pond too? I'll, I'll give you a ride and he puts his hand out and the lizard jumps into his hand and my dad swims around with the other hand and he goes all around the pond with the lizard and then he comes back and the lizard jumps back onto the rock and then goes on its, on its way. And those are the kind of things I could, I could see my dad do and I just, you know, to this day, I don't have that skill set like that. But I was talking to a former monk of 34 years the other week. And uh, he's now doing similar work like I'm doing, so that's why we had a nice conversation. He, he's working with companies now, helping them to be more mindful and more present in business. And uh, he was talking to me about being on a retreat in the desert that he would go to every year for decades. And he was telling me about a time when he was feeding cheese to a fox. And I said, how could you feed cheese to a fox? I know how my father would do it, but I wanted to hear his story. I said, well, you have to adopt the pace of nature. You have to be willing to communicate at their pace, which is very slow. 
And I said, so what did you do? He said, well, I took the cheese. I saw a fox once and I brought out some cheese and I just sat there. And then an hour passed and another hour passed and I noticed it was getting closer. And I just decided I will wait. I will be present with the fox and um, I will watch my own internal workings so that I can keep redirecting towards peacefulness and not generate any you know, any energy that might scare it off. And then eventually the fox came to him and he offered the cheese to it. So this is what, you know, this is what we can learn spontaneously when we, when we spend time in nature. And fortunately I had that, you know, good training growing up. And now when I think about um, the life of forests and plants, I, uh, always make it a point to go to this uh, little historic site in Santa Rosa where my parents live now. It's um, the home of, former home of Luther Burbank who was a great botanist and developed so many varieties of plants before genetic engineering. And he created a potato that we are all familiar with. It's called the russet potato. But it, it was known as the Burbank potato during his time. And it was important because he developed it out of compassion after learning about the potato famine. He tried to find ways that the potato could survive harsh conditions. Anyways, among all the plants in his gardens, he had a patch of cacti, and the cacti were growing without needles. And it was a curious sight, and it's still there, and I, I visit it every time I go to Santa Rosa because I feel a sense of peace among his trees and in particular in the cactus garden. And um, it wasn't well known how he did it, but there's an autobiography of a friend of his, a monk, uh, one of the first, um, first yogis to come, or swamis to come from India. His name was Yogananda. And he has an autobiography. It's called Autobiography of a Yogi. And there's a chapter dedicated to Luther Burbank. And in this chapter, he talks about the cacti. And um, Luther Burbank had a little book called The Training of the Human Plant. And among all the wonderful lessons in there, it says the secret ingredient for both raising um, plants and trees as well as human beings is love. And he tells Yogananda privately that he talks to all his plants and trees and he tells them that he loves them. So he said he noticed after a couple of years of being with the cacti every day that the needles were falling off. So when he saw this, he started to amp it up. He would actually tell them, you don't need your needles because I'm here and I'm the protector of this place and I love you. So in the book it says that they all fell off and, um, and whether it's true or not, I mean, it could just be a story, as we were learning in one of the previous pre previous classes, there's such thing called story bias. So it's good to just take stories as stories first and then investigate further. But in the last 10 years of me going to this particular place, I've noticed that the cacti are starting to grow needles again. I thought that was interesting because if it was really like some kind of genetic change, why are they growing them back 100 years after Luther Burbank has passed? But in the life of a tree, time flows a little bit differently. One of the oldest trees on the planet is 9,500 years old. Uh, 
It's a spruce tree in Sweden. So they can afford <laughs> to move at a leisurely pace. And we can learn from that as well. And so how are we similar then? Well, we're similar because they have uh, some social life. People have already mentioned that. There's a lot of evidence that shows that trees have families. If you take a mother tree and um, you separate the seedlings from the tree and you put them somewhere else in the forest, studies show that they can reconnect. Suzanne Samard is a professor at, in British Columbia who's been studying trees. She did an interesting experiment where she put a plastic bag over a tree and then with a, a carbon molecule, she marks it with a radioactive isotope so she can follow it. And she injects into the bag the carbon molecule, which is the food of the tree. So she knows that it's gonna go to that tree and not any other tree. And with a Geiger counter, she follows it as the tree absorbs it. Right away, the tree takes in the carbon. And then she follows it as it goes into the tree and ultimately in the root system. And then where does it go? It ends up in another tree. It ends up in another tree that is related to that tree or has some kind of partnership with the, with the tree. So what kind of partnerships do they have? Well, the trees recognize their own relatives underground, the roots do. If it's their own child, the roots make room for the roots of the child. If it's um, their own species, they have ways of recognizing that. And if it's a, a different species, they form partnerships. So uh, Professor Samard discovered that the fir trees and the birch trees develop a partnership. The fir trees in winter are still able to um, collect a lot of energy and food through photosynthesis, and they will send underground nutrients to the birch tree, which may have a harder time in winter. And then when summer comes, the birch tree repays the fir tree and she can follow this, this trail. So how are they going between trees? They're not, they're not, you know, growing together, but there is a network of communication that happens through fungi. Mycorrhizal fungi underneath carry messages, not just food, but messages from trees to each other. And before a mother tree dies, she sends a lot of nutrients underground through the roots into the fungi and information about survival, about future threats to the children. So it's interesting. And when the child is growing up, say child, but seedling is growing, you would think that uh, it would be hard because it's under the shade of the parent. But that's also how we grow up, in theory, under the shade of our parents, under the watch of our parents. Well, some foresters don't realize that this is a necessary part of raising a forest. So you take trees and you space them out. That's how all these um, uh, factory forests are created. Equal amount of space, so they all get plenty of sunlight and they grow really fast. Why do they grow really fast? Because the parent isn't over them. Well, the parent is over them and feeding them underground, nursing the tree, 
for almost uh, 100 or 200 years. Then the tree is large enough, strong enough to make its uh, journey into the canopy. And when you put them alone into the, into the uh, factory farms, they grow really fast. They grow really fast because they have all this access to sunlight, but they're not healthy. They don't live long. But it doesn't matter because it's just like any other factory farm. You pump animals with the growth hormones just to get them to grow really fast and ultimately to slaughter them. It's the same with the forest. You just want them to grow really fast and so you can chop them down and then regrow them again. They grow really fast just as if you removed our parents, you got to grow up pretty quickly. That doesn't mean that's the healthiest way, you know, to raise a child. But you do have to grow up quickly if you lose a parent. And similarly, the trees have to grow up really quickly, but they're not being nursed by the parent, and so they're missing out on something, and it makes their, makes their life a little bit more difficult, and, and they suffer in some way. Do trees have uh, romantic relationships? It appears as if they do, and you can see many foresters have found that uh, if you chop a tree down that's part of a pair, that's been with a partner for hundreds of years, that the partner dies shortly afterwards. And that's not the case with other trees. So there's some kind of relationship there. And it's kind of similar to the phenomenon that we see in society when, when older people lose a loved one, sometimes there's heart failure. It's a broken heart syndrome. Perhaps there is uh, those, kind of, uh, those kind of relationships. If you fast forward after uh, Luther Burbank's life, like 50 years into the future, there's an interesting man by the name of Cleve Baxter. Some of us talked about the Baxter effect once upon a time in the past, but he was the foremost uh, expert on uh, administering the lie detector. It was newer technology, so he, his responsibility was to train people in the CIA and the FBI and uh, in his office late one night, he had nothing in there except, a, I think it's called a Dracania. It's like a dragon tree. And uh, his, uh, his assistant had brought it to him because she wanted to green the place up a little bit. There was nothing in his office. And bored one night, grading papers and so on and preparing for his lectures, he's looking at the plant, the tree, the little tree, and he decides to hook, to hook the uh, polygraph to its leaves. <laughs> and uh, so it, 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 there's a galvanometer, which then uh, measures some electrical response. And then there's a pencil that uh, traces lines. And you follow this uh, pattern to, to see when there might be an emotional response. So he's pouring water onto the, the plant, thinking that that should create some resistance. And he's seeing some subtle change in the galvanometer, uh, but then he's remembering how, how to apply this, and when uh, subjects feel like their life is threatened, you really get an emotional response. So he decides to take the leaves of the tree and dunk them into his hot coffee, but he doesn't really see anything happen, and uh, he's thinking. Then he gets the idea, I know, I'll burn the tree. And when he has the vision in his mind, then the galvanometer <laughs> starts moving. So he's thinking, oh my God, did I just discover that plants can read our minds? 
And, uh, you know, so he starts to go get, uh, get a, a match, but now he's no longer intending to hurt the plant. He's just thinking about it, but the intent to harm is gone, and the tree goes back to normal. And um, he writes about this, and he starts to tell the world about this, but he remains silent, which was wise, because obviously people aren't really ready for that kind of pseudoscience. And um, they tried to repeat this experiment, and nobody's really had success. I don't necessarily think that it's a complete hoax, because there was another there was another researcher around that time, Chandra Bose in uh, India, who is a legend among plant scientists. And he was doing all these kinds of exper experiments as well. And he was writing about them. So anyways, he called this ultimately primary perception. Because the idea here is, well, plants don't have ears, plants don't have eyes. How are they picking up on this stuff? Because we now know that if you even Michael Pollan writes in, a, in, a, in the New York Times article that if you play the sound of a caterpillar munching a leaf, like a milkweed plant or certain trees, it'll start to secrete defense chemicals. But how does it know it doesn't have ears? Well, what Baxter said is the Baxter effect is primary perception. We think that other life forms like trees can't hear, can't see, because they don't have eyes and ears. But what Baxter was proposing was maybe that all there is is hearing and perception and seeing. There's all seeing, primary perception. But because we have eyes, we don't see. Because we have ears, we can choose not to hear, and that becomes a luxury for human beings. Can you imagine all the time seeing and perceiving what everyone's thinking, what, what is all going around at all times? We can not see. Our eyes actually give us the opportunity to not see. If there were no eyes, he's saying, then there's only seeing. So it's an interesting thought. I really find it fascinating. Uh, but if we fast forward to today, what is happening right now to, uh, to contribute to, to this legacy? There is a wonderful, uh, brilliant researcher in Australia, Monica Gagliano in Sydney, and she's doing experiments to try to find out more of this idea of plant intelligence. And I'll just tell you a couple experiments. She had a group of uh, trees and she wanted to see how this phenomenon happens where a tree ultimately goes to a water pipe and starts wrapping its roots around it and then eventually the pipe breaks. This is a problem in some homes and they find, okay, there was roots wrapped so tightly around the water pipe, but how did it find it? Well, obviously it may be able to detect moisture through the mycorrhizal network. Maybe the fungi communicate to the tree because they have communication. Hey, there's water over here, go this way. So she did an experiment where she had a young tree with a Y-shaped pipe system so that its roots can only go in one of two directions. And at the end of one trail is a water pipe. And at the end of the other trail, there's not. So which way will it go? 80% of the time, it grows out of the side that leads to the water pipe. So she thought, well, okay, maybe it's somehow figuring this out through the soil. There's microorganisms in the soil like the fungi and it's receiving information about the water. So she puts the pipe outside of the, um, the Y, 
So it has no contact with it, not even through the soil. And still, 80% of the time, it goes towards it. And she tried something else. She put two MP3 players, one of the sound of water in a pipe, and the other without that sound, different sound. And 80% of the time, it goes to the MP3 player of water. So there are some other levels of perception that the plants have uh, that's pretty fascinating. Another experiment. She wanted to recreate Pavlov's uh, experiment with the dog. And so in Pavlovian conditioning, a bell is rung and meat is given to the dog. Eventually, the bell is rung and no meat is given and the dog salivates, which means it has learned that the bell is connected with the food. Can a plant learn? And is there a way to create Pavlov's experiment with the plants, with the trees? Well, she used pea plants and um, she had to find something that means nothing on the surface to a plant. Like a bell doesn't mean anything to a dog. And then to see if it could mean something to the plant. So she tried different things, but ultimately she found that a little fan from her computer would yielded no reaction in the plant. So she used that and she paired it with food. So food for the plant is light. So she would take the little fan from a certain direction and blow it onto the pea plant. And then after that would shine a direct blue LED light onto the plant. And then its leaves would open up so that it could photosynthesize. Then she would move it around to another part of the room and did this until there was sufficient conditioning in theory. Then Monica plays or starts the fan in a new part of the room without the light. And the plant turns towards that direction and opens up to receive the food. How is it doing that? How did it learn and remember the fan is now um, an indication that food could be coming. Where is it storing these, these memories? Well, she says we're a little bit brain-centric. We think that there has to be a brain for there to be learning. In fact, half of all definitions that you could find for intelligence involve a brain. But maybe there's something, something else. And a final experiment that I'll share, there's many others, but she took um, mimosa pudicas. These are known as touch-me-nots. So if you touch them, what happens? The leaves close. So this is a wonderful experiment because you have something that happens so quickly. You touch a plant, this plant, and its leaves collapse so that it becomes smaller and uh, predators might decide to move on, thinking, okay, there's nothing to see here. So she created a contraption where the plant, the mimosa plant, could be dropped from a short distance onto a padded surface so it won't do any harm to the plant and she wants to see with this electronic device if she keeps dropping the plant if it will finally learn this isn't dangerous and stop collapsing after so many tries the plant stops reacting to the stimulus so she thought well I got to test to see if it's just out of energy so she takes the plant and she gives it a little shake and it collapses its leaves. And then she waits and she tries it again. Three weeks later, one drop, plant does not collapse. 
the same conditions. Months later, you can do it again and the plant will not react. It's now learned that it is no longer a threat. And how it happens is still a mystery. But it's evidence for something more. And we just look at the trees and, we, and the plants and we just don't see anything. We just see some static image. I think it's interesting too because when you, when you look at like ancient art on cave walls, paintings, we can go, oh, you know, there's a fox, there's a deer, there's a plant. <laughs> you know, we don't really know what all the plants are. We can tell, you know, the difference between all these animals because we think there's so much more intelligence there. And because the plants and the trees are so silent, I think they're, they're overlooked. We don't see nature as part of ourself. How else are plants like us? Well, we might say or think conventionally, we came into this world. And that's different than a tree. But in reality, we came out of this world. Like a tree, we started as a seed. The tree sprouts out of the mother earth and the human being sprouts out of the mother's womb. Pretty similar. And when we say we can move, we have freedom, we can go wherever we want. But there's really a superficiality in that. It's like, imagine if you were a distant observer, a giant observer in space, and you came towards Earth, and you saw trees and you saw people, and so the people are kind of moving about, and you might wonder, can you pluck them? No, you cannot pluck either. <laughs> you pick the, the human up and you can only go so high off the surface before you got to get it back to the soil, you know? Like 5,000 feet, maybe 10,000 feet. And we might think, no, 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 no. You know, Elon Musk is talking about sending people to, the, to Mars in 2030. So we can go wherever we want. Well, we can remove a human plant from, from the ground, but what do you got to do? You got to can the earth and put it around him or her and then you can send him somewhere else. And you can do the same with the tree, but you gotta pot it and you gotta carefully move it or any plant. And so really like how different is that? It's like when I, I just read something the other day too, like people don't really tend to go very far anyway. 40% of Americans don't move from their birthplace. So our movements are there, but ultimately we keep coming back to a to a static spot. We have a home. You know? So there's a lot of similarities. And, and if you think about life in that way, we can't go anywhere without a, a canned version of our elements. And we say, everything outside of my skin is separate, is other. And yet it's as essential as everything inside of your skin. Because if it's not there, it's over. So we need these organs inside and you need exactly that kind of environment. So the environment is really an extension of ourself. Because we don't see it, we just go about destroying it. The earth here is 4.6 billion years old. If you scale that down to something close to my life, my age, 46 years, 4.6 billion to 46 years. So a middle-aged man. Then in the life of that man, or the life of the earth, if it was 46 years old, then human beings would have arrived four hours ago and uh, 
The Industrial Revolution would have started one minute ago, and in that time we've cleared 50% of the forest. We don't have any cause for alarm because we think of life on our scale. Well, you know, not much is happening in, you know, 50 years. Some things are happening. But could you imagine if in four hours you spotted something new on your skin and then within four hours it covered your whole body and spread all over the place and half of your hair fell out in one minute? We would probably be in the emergency room. <laughs> you know? um, anyways, so the forest has a lot to teach us and now in Japan, since the 1980s, they have been studying something called uh, Shinrin-yoku. It translates to forest bathing. And all it means is to go into the forest. So previously we thought that trees just like us are competing. But actually they're cooperating. As they fill in or seemingly fight for sunlight, they're not fighting for sunlight. A forest is working together to close the canopy. Because if even one tree dies, it creates a hole in the canopy. And that increased heat goes into the forest, raises the temperature, evaporates the water, and becomes a threat to the survival of the whole community. So they're working to close the canopy. And I saw this recently in my own yard, chopping down a sick tree and seeing very quickly that canopy closed. I thought we could have a garden. We all thought we could have a garden where that sunlight was coming through, but soon we found we could not because, <laughs> because it closed to protect the microclimate. So that's why they protect each other because they see that the, the whole community needs to be intact for their own health. And as human beings, though, we don't see that. That's the way nature works. It works in harmony with so many other aspects of nature. But it's hard for human beings to see it to see it that way. So for example, if, if an acacia tree in Africa is being eaten by a giraffe, giraffe's eating its leaf, it will ultimately start to secrete a chemical so that the leaf becomes unappetizing to the giraffe. But then it will shoot a scent into the air and that scent will reach the other trees in the forest and before the giraffe gets there, they will already be secreting their defense chemicals. The giraffe, you can observe, will not go to the next tree once that leaf becomes unappetizing. It will run further down to try to beat the signal. So the whole forest knows this game. <laughs> the giraffe gets enough from that tree, not enough to kill the tree, but enough to sustain the giraffe. Now you go on to another place, and, and that way everybody's taking care of each other. So underground, these signals are communicated as well. And that is why in Japan, when you go into the forest to bathe, you're in the microclimate. You're actually in another environment and you can feel it. And because the trees are protecting themselves and giving off these scents, we smell stuff. And those oils that are secreted, those are therapeutic. It's now been shown and been proven that many of these uh, scents from the oils that the trees are using to defend themselves boost our immune systems. We're giving them carbon dioxide, they're feeding us oxygen. When they're protecting themselves, it's enriching us, but we just don't go into the environment. 
And so there's a robust amount of research now in Japan of how this uh, Shinrin-yoku lowers blood pressure, um, reduces depression, and prevents other types of illness and helps people to be healthier. For me, I, when I go to California, I feel like I'm coming home to the Redwood Forest. I was born in Oakland. I spent a lot of time in Muir Woods and Armstrong Woods. And when I think about California, I think about that forest. It's like calling to me all the time. And when I enter it, it's like, you know, we have oceans on our planet and there's life forms roaming in those oceans. But don't you think the forests are our oceans on the surface? When you go into there, it's like we can roam in that ocean. There's a there's an energy, there's a vibration there. So our homework would be to make time to go into the forest, local forest, wherever you can, to pay attention, to go without technology if you can, and to just be present and wander and pay attention and um, allow yourself to be plugged into the the big battery. Once in a while, if you can go to a giant forest like um, out west or Shawnee Forest down south or in Minnesota, Wisconsin and explore those, those natural spaces as well, do that. So compassion means literally to suffer together. And yet, that don't sound pleasant, but yet that is the, the condition for happiness. There is a, uh, uh, a monk, a businessman turned monk, whose name was Matthew Ricard, and he is the happiest man that ever lived that has been measured by science. Because with MRIs, you can find how happy a person is by the proportion of left prefrontal cortex activity compared to the right. And what all of the happiest people that have been studied by science, monks, longtime meditators, super joyful, peaceful people, you will always find this in the prefrontal cortex and they are meditating on compassion. Why? Because to have compassion or to cultivate compassion and become healthier and then reap the benefits of your own well-being, you have to see yourself in the other. So you start to see yourself in your children, in your family. And your compassion now has expanded from just caring about me, oh, I care about this uh, little tribe here now. And I think about them. And their well-being is my well-being. And their pain is my pain. But then if you can see it beyond that, you feel that for the community. And then when you can see that for other life forms, you feel it for the animals, you feel it for um, the trees. And when you're um, among the trees, you start to realize that I have all these elements, we share all these elements, without the elements, there's no inside or outside. It starts to break down the concept of inside and outside. Now like a Taoist practitioner, you're mastering the forces of nature and you're starting to transcend them because when there becomes less an inside and outside, there's less me and them. There's less competition. There's more cooperation. And ultimately, 
this compassion grows and grows and grows until the meditator or the, the aspirant feels as though the whole is part of uh, myself. And depression can only grow in isolation. So in therapy, in our clinical work, we immediately start to look for protective factors. What are protective factors? How would you not being here impact this loved one? Or can you please come to uh, this 12-step program and, and, and see how other people are coping and connect with other people in this uh, grief and loss support group? so that you'll see that your suffering is connected to other people's suffering. And once there's connection, depression can't grow as well. Depression meaning separation, isolation, the, that dark feeling of meaninglessness. So the compassion grows that sense of oneness. And it starts with, with the people who are closest to us and it needs to expand. So the trees are an opportunity to see ourselves in them. If we see they have a family, they have a life, they have connections, they need the same environment, we need each other, and when we start to care for them and appreciate them, then our compassion grows, and compassion lights up the left prefrontal cortex. Once that grows and more gray matter develops, then you have the conditions for transcending suffering. And so that's what the, the ancient traditions are teaching. Meditate on compassion, grow your compassion, see yourself in the other. So although that may sound strange to see myself suffering with others, but it also means that the joy of anyone is my joy. So it makes me less jealous, makes me less worried, less fearful of losing. And to support you is to support myself. When I see myself in you, and like a mother tree, I can send nutrients out, then I ultimately strengthen the canopy, which protects my, my microclimate. We just don't see it that way, and we're destroying ourselves. So we just don't have that sense. We have this idea that I'm so separate, I could go anywhere in the universe, but, uh, but it doesn't really work that way. And when we see ourself in others, so look at the tree, and see your reflection in the tree. Obviously, creation and destruction is happening. It's part of the pairs of opposites. But when we take something, uh, how are we taking it? With what spirit, with what attitude? Is it as if uh, there's no thought, no respect mechanically, or is it done with a sense of purpose? So I think the main thing is to be intentional with how we interact with nature, how we use nature. You know, we're taking from nature all the time, but are we contributing, are we giving back to nature? Are, are we making time to support in some way? We're always in this uh, game of give and take. We're always destroying a little bit of something, but we're also creative people. But I think it's important for us to go into those spaces when we can. And, and if you can take your shoes off even once in a while, Science, some scientists are saying that um, our, the rubber on the bottom of our shoes is preventing so many um, electromagnetic currents from the earth to flow into our system and help harmonize and balance the electromagnetic fields emanating around our heart and brain. 
And there's a lot of really good research, especially in Japan, that's showing if you spend X amount of time per week, especially in recovery from something like depression, touching the earth with your bare feet, that there is a health benefit, that there's many positive health outcomes. So, I mean, that's more evidence to show how much like trees we actually are.